BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. official products such as this marvelous t-shirt that I'm wearing or this great coffee mug that I'm drinking out of and many other products with the show about stuff the Stephen Davis logo at https colon slash slash www.zazzle.com slash store slash a stuff store and make sure you get your 15% discount today. Welcome to a new podcast show about stuff. It's the The Show About Stuff, The Stephen Davis Show. Here's your host, Stephen Davis. Welcome to The Show About Stuff, The Stephen Davis Show. Today, my guest is a marvelous educator, scholar, journalist, digital media content creator, musician, professor. I welcome today, Lady Dr. Diana Ziegler. How are you doing today, Diana? I am doing well, Steve. It's so good to see you. It's been a long time. It's been a long time, and we go back a lot of years. So it's <laughs> always good to see old friends and have great memories. Okay. What I generally do when I do the show, if you've seen it before, is I always start off at the very beginning because that's how you get to know people before they get into what they are they want to talk about or what we want to discuss. So tell me about your childhood. Where were you born at? I was born in Harlem, in New York City, in Sydenham Hospital on 124th Street, one block from the Apollo Theater. Whoa, and I was born on 96th Street <laughs> in Metropolitan Hospital. And that's where my sister was born. Oh, okay. Small world. 
Yes. I'm a Brooklyn man. <laughs> hey, I became a Brooklyn man. And I always tell people that's when the center of the universe moved to Brooklyn. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, uh, I get it. <laughs> so tell me, so let's start over. Talk, talk to me about your parents. My mother and father are both from Florida. My mother was born in Jacksonville, Florida, and my father was born in Quincy, Florida. My grandmother actually left Jacksonville when my mother was nine years old. She tells a story about how she was riding the subway. My grandmother just coming to New York and her feet were hurting. So she had to borrow <laughs> my grandmother's bedroom slippers or something because her feet were hurting <laughs> at nine. So that was her introduction to New York. My father, he left Quincy, Florida at 16 and came to New York. Grandmother at that time was living on Morningside Avenue, 116th Street and Morningside Avenue during those days. And that's actually how my mother and father met in the Morningside Park because he used to play baseball. But my father was also the lead singer of the Morning Doves Gospel Quartet. So he used to sing on the radio. Oh, all the okay. time in these wonderful white suits and stuff. And he was singing up until he left you. Yeah, I got a, something that I need to say. It's three degrees of separation always, but you never know that until you really start talking to people. My grandmother and grandfather were on 115th Street on my mother's side. <laughs> <laughs> between Fifth and Lenox, <laughs> which is right. right down the street from where you were at. At right. the same time, we just didn't know each other. We were right down the street from each other. And oh. do you remember the Regan Theater on 116th Street? Of course I remember that. We were right behind that. <laughs> okay, all right. It is a small world. We'll it's talk about 112th and 5th later. Oh, okay. <laughs> but you go ahead. My mother and father actually met when he was playing baseball, as I said, in the park. So they, they I found out that they got married actually a year before I was born. There were two other children <laughs> prior to that. I have an, an older sister and my brother's deceased and my sister Patricia Ziegler married William Gessick last night in the Pips. They met after I was born. My mother and father moved to Astoria, Queens. And we stayed there, I guess, for so many years before we moved back to, to Harlem. Okay. And when you moved back to Harlem, where did you move to? We were at Colonial Projects 159-14 Harlem River Drive. <laughs> Harlem River Drive. <laughs> yeah, right across from the river. The river was there. My, my sister and brother, they went to PS 156 school. And then, then the junior high school was Stitt. They actually went to school with Frankie and Louis Lyman. Oh, now okay. me, they... They shipped me out. <laughs> I was only, they were still, while they were in elementary school, I was too young to go to school and both parents were working. So my father actually took me to Quincy, Florida, 
to stay with my grandparents until I was old and I could come to school because they both had to work and there was no one to take care of me. So my grandparents took care of me. And really growing up in, in that couple of years, it may have been just a year and a half or so, is where I got my love for nature because there was nothing but woods. <laughs> Especially in those days. <laughs> and, Quincy, and and my grandfather, who was quiet, just like my dad, quiet. He had a, I remember he had a little Kelly Green boat. And we used to go, he used to take me fishing with him. We'd be out there all day long, not saying a word. And then if I caught a fish, I didn't want anybody to fry it. I would cry because I didn't want them to fry the fish that I caught. But <laughs> I didn't take up fishing, but I still have a love for nature and trees and all of that. I stayed down there for, like I said, a year and a half or so until I was old enough to, I guess I went down at about four or five. I must have come back at around six or seven. Well, anyway. Did you start school there or did you start? Yeah, start I, yeah, I started school in Quincy. My sister tells me this, I don't know, that some teacher fell in love with me and taught me even outside of school because I was, she thought I was smart. So by the time I came back to New York, I should have been going to the second grade and I was going to the fourth grade. Oh, okay. My mother had my father come get me because my grandparents were trying to keep me. And my mother said, no, you go down there and you get my child. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I came back home. Ironically, my mother had one day off of work and she took me to PS 156 to the public school. They could not enroll me that day. She had one day off of work. So while I was in Quincy and my, somehow my family had turned Catholic. Now I'd already been baptized twice because I was <laughs> baptized Methodist when I was born. <laughs> I went down to Quincy. They baptized me primitive Baptist. <laughs> I came back to New York Catholic. So. <laughs> My mother takes me over to Resurrection on 151st Street, Macombs Avenue, and says to Father Dugan, if you, if y'all would take her, I promise I will get another part-time job for the tuition, we'll get her uniforms or whatever. Somehow, she talked Father Dugan into taking me at Resurrection. Now, he said at that time that I was just too small to go to the fourth grade. So they would put me in the third grade. So I started out being skipped once. I keep saying, but I probably could have stayed in the fourth grade. But anyway, I had then became in a solid world because Catholic school was solid. <laughs> you couldn't talk and the nuns and stuff. They gave me the foundation or picked up on the foundation I already had. And I was a pretty good student and graduated from resurrection school. You'll appreciate this. The, the year I graduated, the year before I graduated, I'll get mixed up because it was like at cathedral when William and Pat got married. But we had our first black priest at resurrection. This is my point. And he put a black Virgin Mary in the church back there. Like he was 
father, father Lucas, he was something else. He came in there and just changed everything around. So my last two years, my junior year and senior year of that, we had seventh and eighth grade, actually. We had the seventh to the eighth grade, we had the Black Virgin Mary that was creating all kinds of stuff. Father Lucas was very well known Right. Up until he died just a number, a few years ago. Yes. A few years ago. Michelle Carlos and who are friends of mine now, I just talked to them. Oh, I had a text today. Shake and Bake from the Globetrotters. Right. Shake and Bake Skeeter is married to Michelle Carlos, who went to Catholic school, who went to cathedral. So when we met in Orlando, Father Lucas was a great friend of hers and her family so i got a chance to talk to him as an adult before he passed when i moved in florida which is will always be so special so i was there doing <laughs> father yeah, okay my father lucas and now my my other grandmother my father's mother lived on 131st street between fifth and madison and that was right down the street madison yes yes that's where you went here we go yeah that my Ninth and 10th grade was at the Annex. That's what we call the Annex on 131st and Madison Avenue, where we used to come down the stairs. We couldn't talk there either. So it was very noisy when we got out and we used to roll those skirts up and make our skirts <laughs> short because they were hanging between our ankle and our <laughs> And I went to, for a while, because my father was in the military, so I went around, but when he couldn't go, we couldn't go with him. We came back and lived with my, both my grandmothers. During the week, we live with my grandmother on 31st Street, and I went to 133. Wow. <laughs> and we didn't meet till our 20s, and we're on, on each other's path. Definitely, it was in divine order for us to meet. Now, I did a show not too long ago, just recently, and just like now, I'm, I'm talking to this woman, her name is Joyce Johnson, and she mentions, oh, my, I grew up partially in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and my father was from Fayetteville, North Carolina, and he went to E.E. Smith. I said, I know a whole bunch of people from E.E. Smith. I lived in Fayetteville, because <laughs> my father was at Fort Bragg. So this is, I love it when we do shows like, when I do shows like this, where it's not pre-canned you it just the excitement because you just learn about somebody that you've known for a long time but then you're learning the little intricacies that you should have known a long time ago <laughs> we were moving too fast back then. <laughs> now you went to high school there i went to the ninth and tenth grade because after that then the my mother moved to New Jersey. We were living on 112th Street and 5th Avenue. That's what I was saying. I was going to get back to that. We lived in Stephen Foster and Holland. We moved from Colonial to Foster. So we were 112th Street and 5th Avenue. My grandmother lived in the Stephen Foster. The one I was telling you on 100, they lived on 15th Street. And then I had an aunt that lived at in that building on 112. 112. I'm still in touch. In fact, I had lunch with some of my 112th Street people when I were when I was in New York in August. Uh -huh. well, we my, go my... up there. We go up because that is uh, that's the building we were living in. That building when my sister and William got married, 
William Guest of Last Night in the Pips. Mm -hmm. And my brother actually died in that building, 112th Street. But every time I go to New York, I remember my sister taking her kids, her grandkids, recently in one of our visits about four years ago. And we drove because we like for them to know where we're from and see our roots and went up there and so many of those people in the building because that was when the whole neighborhood raised you so well we, we would be in the window telling we, us what to do we were at 40 west 115th street and as i said before my aunt when she got, grew older she moved to 112th and 5th Avenue. Yeah, 1350. Yes, that's the building she lived in. That's the address of the building. I still remember them. It's the building she lived in. We still go there. But even then, remember I tell you my love for nature? We mm -hmm. were in Central Park. So I yes. love that, that I could go into nature. And with, with the boats? Because when you went into 110th Street ex entrance, it was right near where the where you can rent boats and ride around. Oh, exactly, exactly. And later on, I used to live in Central Park with my bicycle. <laughs> and later on, they did because I remember seeing Cool and the Gang there at a, at across 110th Street, the club they right. had in Central Park. <laughs> I tell you, yeah, those were the days. So, what high school did you go to? After I left Cathedral, my, I finished my last two years in East Orange High School because my only reason, my mother got there too late and could not register me in Catholic school. But for <laughs> me, it was heaven. It was the first time I could wear my own clothes. You know? I had football and basketball game. And I, I went in there the year that the song, The Girl from New York City came out. Oh, yes. And that was a song that they would associate with me in high school <laughs> because I moved there, the girl from New York City, and my, my whole family was into fashion. So I was really getting a chance to really <laughs> wear my own clothes. And they said, that's the girl from New York City. <laughs> so it was fun. But half of my mother's siblings lived in New Jersey and the other half lived in New York. My grandmother lived in Orange, New Jersey, and a brother and sister, they live right next door to each other, their houses. So I had a lot of supervision in the building we moved in. Uncle Charlie lived on the fourth floor. We lived on the first floor. I had a lot of family around. And then I got a chance to go to school with my cousins, with my first cousins that I would only see at Christmas in my grandmother's basement. I had a, a, when I was at 130, PS 133, I had a cousin who has since deceased, but he lived, he actually lived across the street from me. There were a lot of cousins and stuff on 131st Street that I didn't know that when my grandfather died in 1980, 1990, and I went down to do the eulogy in South Carolina because he took his body down in South Carolina. And people would come up to me and say, don't you remember me from 130, 31st Street? I used to cut your hair. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't remember you. Let's move on. Let's talk about high school. How was, what was your experiences in high school? That's what I'm saying. In the Catholic school, 
It was quiet. We couldn't talk. It was very disciplined. I was, I could not understand why we'd have to walk all around the staircase when the hallway that go down the stairs and everything was so uniform. I hate lines today. <laughs> we have to line up for everything. And as I said, when we got out at three o'clock, cause we couldn't talk all day. And even as a kid, I wrote everybody letters. Nobody don't, they don't really believe that I was not a talking child. I was an introvert and I wrote my mother letters and stuff. My mother talked about how I would leave the letter for her coffee, whatever I had to say it, I would get it off my mind, but I used to write a lot. Mm -hmm. And so it was very quiet. But once I got in high school in East Orange high school, oh. and I could wear my own clothes <laughs> and talk and didn't have to stand in lines and we could just go down whatever staircase we wanted. It was fun. <laughs> we had football games and basketball games. It was almost like college for me. Mm -hmm. given that I had gone to Catholic school prior, which could be the reason why I didn't go to college right away. I had that foundation. It was like, got football games, basketball games. So it was very exciting. Right after high school, year, my last year in high school, my sister married my brother-in-law. I was 16 then, but they went out alive since I was 11 years old when they first came to New York singing. They weren't really singing at the Apollo then, but Bobby Robinson was managing them. Letter Full of Tears all during that time. Mm -hmm. In fact, William and Edward Patton, the other Pip, two of them are deceased. My brother-in-law passed about five years ago and Edward had passed prior to. But I used to be with the two of them throughout <laughs> my adulthood too, but they used to take me when I was 11. And my brother used to say, mama, let her come with us. And so from 11 years old, I was hanging out with those guys, which was great. But we were Apollo. My mother went to, would go to the Apollo on Wednesday night and for the talent shows and stuff, always sit on the right side box seat. My sister and I won the twist contest at the Apollo. My sister <laughs> won for the older girls. I won for the younger. All we had to do was hop over the balcony and get on the stage. And that was during the time she was dating William. They were on the show and stuff. So everybody, they were rooting for us backstage. We had our friends from Harlem in the, <laughs> in the audience. So we just had a great time. So that was it exciting time being introduced not only to my father's gospel music but through their music and then having them as a part of our lives and that's when things shifted for me i graduated from east stern high school and then we moved back to new york and at that time i was really in love with the the arts at that point my sister and i even while we were kids in Harlem, we took dancing and stuff. And we studied at Menacing. You remember Menacing? Yeah, I remember. Yeah. I, re yeah, I think Debbie Allen studied dance and stuff there. But I followed my sister doing so many things. Pat and William met at the Apollo. And so I really thought that I was going to be a dancer or theater. I worked for Eddie McClintock, remember? He had a theater program and Voices Incorporated. So I worked for a couple of theater companies and all of that. And then I started later on, Gladys Knight and the Pips had gotten really big and Patton and Guest Productions, which was Edward Patton and William Guest, I became executive vice president of the company and we started 
producing music and I created and produced Disco Bells. Yes, Disco Bells. That you wore on your wrists and ankles and dance. And we had them at Studio 54 and all of the different places. The TV show Soul had them. Cosmopolitan ran them twice. Essence ran them. And that was, I was a master of free publicity back in those days. Because I didn't pay for any of that national <laughs> But I, I remember doing my disco bells and Lamuches, yeah. Pippins, Pippins. And because we introduced them and had, remember Sterling St. Jock was one of our models. Yeah. And you, you had an office on 57th and at 888, 7th <laughs> Avenue, right? Yeah. <laughs> those were back in those days. It's so ironic how my life and career changed because I, I just thought that I was going to do all with music. Then I had, in 75, I had written and produced the number one disco hit, Time Moves On by Strzok. Yeah. So I had that record. And then with Patton and Guest Productions, we produced Willie Bridges, Bridges to Cross. And I had two songs with the lyrics on that album. And, and that went on and on until, again, the group started getting crazy last night in the pips and they split up. So I jumped, that's when I jumped back into school. I had to pay the rent and they were, I was, I've been, I, I've been blessed all the way to my PhD. I've never paid tuition. I think that my daughter might've got that from you. I think a PhD <laughs> she has to pay for, but all the other stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I guess that was that foundation down in Quincy, Florida. That started my brain because I've always been a thinker, always thinking, following, trying to figure things out regardless. So when I went to Baruch, it's funny because I was still dealing with patent and guest production, still dealing with disco bells, still dealing with music. So I was in the business school at first. And until I found out they were using disco bells as an example of new product marketing. And I was this little young lady who was there on scholarship, supposedly poor, told, which I was, <laughs> but I couldn't let them know that I was the one who created this because it was something <laughs> wow, we've done this. Somehow I met a journalism professor, Rosalind Bernstein. I was also, I'd also in between I was a copywriter producer for Rosenville Sirowitz and Loss. And I don't know if you remember this, where I wrote all the Vi Higginson, Uncle Ben's Rice commercials and produced them. I, in fact, I had one original music that Hubert Laws played for. Because they played those Uncle Ben commercials for years. Hey, ladies, you want to keep your man smiling? <laughs> they played them for years. And I wrote for It's Beer and Uncle Ben's Rice and then later... McDonald's. Yes, I was just juggling and stuff at that point. And when she said, you should come over, you got, you were copywriter and stuff, you should come over to journalism. And I said, okay, because I needed to get out of that business school. Because I used to actually go to school, change clothes. I would have just walking shoes. And then I put on some fancy boots, change my coat. And then I'd go to the record study from school. And that's because I still had an assistant that we were paying who used to pick me up in the car. <laughs> and I used to change clothes and then go and try to handle all of our business until things really got dark as it relates to the group 
and they finally separated. Anyway, I did, I guess, in, in journalism, that when I left there, I won like all the journalism awards. I won about seven journalism awards, <laughs> including the Script Howard Awards. I was also the managing editor of the newspaper. I was the photographer. I was the director of the radio station and did the first video because if you remember Steve Burke and all of them who did video, some friends back in the day, they were able to shoot my news stuff and I introduced them to video. By the way, I went to Baruch also. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my God. This is crazy. We know one person didn't. The guy <laughs> Santos and didn't go to Baruch. But y'all can check, folks. I was thinking. Oh. Yeah. So, so you went to Baruch, you got uh, your I degree. Went to degree in Baruch. Mm -hmm. And then I got I was a double major journalism and music. I was in the choir and I was a minor in education. And then the the dean of students at that time went to he was a graduate of Washington State and he knew he had another friend at Southern Illinois. So he had me apply because I was not going to go to graduate school right away. And he says, no, you're too great. I graduated cum laude. You're good. You had the GPA and stuff. You need to continue your education. So he had me apply at both Washington State University and Southern Illinois University. Dr. Arthur K. Spear actually came to New York, and I met with him. Oh, you'll get a kick out of this. He's sitting up here trying to sell me on the school, and he says, Daffodils bloom two weeks before. <laughs> what the heck do we know about flowers? We saw them in botanical gardens. <laughs> okay. So I had no idea. And I'm just saying, it came again. What was the best deal going to be? I was only going to go to SIU, Southern Illinois University, Carbondale for one year. However, two weeks after I got there, my father passed. And I was a daddy's baby. And I don't know why. There, there used to be a guy, I don't know, this guy, Shipley, but he used to do these commercials and he would take off the glasses. You have a friend that chased Manhattan. He was one of my professors. When my father passed, and I never forget, I went to his office because I told him I had to go home and he made the sign of the cross. And, and for some reason I said, and I don't know why I said it. I said, I'm gonna be Dr. Ziegler to do something in tribute for my father. I don't know why I said that. Okay, so because I didn't want to, I didn't want to return. It's, even when I came back home, I would forget. So that was like the thing that turned around. But even after I was there two weeks and I went back, I got my own TV show, <laughs> Dimensions. I became the host of that, which I did for the whole three years or so I was down there. I did a show a seven-part series, Rape is Reality, a radio series that got us a second place United Press International Award because so many, there were women being raped and people weren't talking about it. And I came in, but that journalism head was clicking in. Why aren't they talking about this? So I ended up, in fact, I didn't even know how to cut tape because in New York, 
I tell the story about, because I interned for two years at CBS. In fact, I worked the elections with Cronkite and worked in the newsroom. And then I worked on a talk show, The Lives We Live. But we could not do anything unless you were in the union. I couldn't even ride in the news car. They used to send me out and tell me to stand in a phone booth. There's a bomb <laughs> threat over there. <laughs> Stand in this phone booth and call us. And I was, I'm on assignment. I was so happy, not thinking about some blow up girl. You going with me. <laughs> but I was just so eager. I was so much into the journalism that I would just go out there and do it. So when I got to Southern Illinois, I was ripe and ready for that. And I remember when I had to, I'd done all those interviews, including interview with a prisoner, a rapist, and, and I had to edit all this stuff. So my, the news director says, here, all your tapes you've been doing and stuff. So we need a 30 minute so that we can send in for an award. And I said, I don't know how to do this. He said, oh, you poor things, small things where you got all of these to learn. <laughs> so luckily what helped me was my music because I could hear in between breaths and rhythms, but I cut it. We won the second place in the United Press International Award. Now it's tell me about the cultural shock between living in New York and... BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Going to Carbondale. Let me tell you, the culture shock, my, one of the people who worked with me on the uh, Baruch newspaper, Remember the reporter, the reporter? That's the one that I was a manager at. He had a sister in St. Louis. I didn't even know how to get to Carbondale because you couldn't just, I wasn't gonna get on a two, a six person plane. So he had his sister meet me in St. Louis. Sounds like a then, movie. Yeah, and then the <laughs> next morning she took me and put me on a bus to Carbondale, I almost cried all the way because every time I woke up, I saw nothing but cornfields. <laughs> That's what I was just thinking. I cried, <laughs> literally, I was like, I was in shock, I was crying and I never forget Harold Bledsoe. He was in the master's program too and we were in the same radio and TV. And then that was another thing. I had two different assistantships and he kept me company on the bus. And when I got there, I really, I didn't know what to do. I was in shock. 
and you end up, they let you off the bus at a railroad track. (laughs) (laughs) And what they've done in Southern Illinois, they have put a whole university back in that time in the middle of the country. Beautiful, again, thank you for my love of nature, (laughs) Quincy, Florida. That's the only thing. And I remember I had to, I was like, dear, I was lost. It took me about a couple of days because I ended up, I had two graduate assistantships. I had two different offers that I could either do one over an administrative building or one as a graduate teaching assistant in radio and television. So that's the one I took. So I actually... Luckily, I had a little background in cameras, a little background in radio, because I was teaching writing, performance, and production, but I was a performer for radio. I did it somehow with little experience on the TV side at that point, because we could not do anything. I had a lot of experience in radio, but again, because like I tell students, what helped me was my ability to see. I could see, frame, do different things, so... That helped me. But again, as soon as I went over there, they offered me my own TV show because I'm the girl from New York City. (laughs) I actually was thinking that of how there are a lot of New Yorkers who have moved to different places. And when they move to those places, they it's like they go to the top of the heap in terms of seeing because they have experience in those different types of areas. And they don't have the unions Mm-hmm. that forbid you from getting the experience that you need. They let me do everything. And I was the first Black female graduate assistant. And the first Black male who was there like a year before me was, he was there. In fact, he never graduated. I came in with 30 guys. I graduated with the master's by myself, okay? Because I did it in a year. I was running. <laughs> Okay, they graduated, but they didn't graduate that quickly. And I overlapped my, I went and overlapped my doctoral program, finishing up that master's program. Now, where did you get your doctors in? My master's in radio and television, and my PhD is in academic administration and education. But let me tell you what they did. I was at that time a technologist. I had moved from all of that, all the technology and stuff was coming in. And so I, and and I guess to, to back up a little bit, because this is gonna be important to the story later on, my thesis I did on African-American and television news, I actually had Max Robinson, I know, in, that you know who Max Robinson. A lot of people don't know who Max Robinson is. WABC I News. Whole, I was writing in my garage now. I have boxes on Walter Cronkite because that's what I was going to do my thesis on until I met Max Robinson. He stayed with us until two in the morning and I changed my whole thing around. He has a whole chapter in my thesis that has been published a couple of times and his brother... Louis Lomack contacted me and he got a copy. Anyway, so I went that direction. By the time I got into, I was interested in technology. I had one professor in radio and television, Dr. Sitaram, who was involved with Sputnik. So 
by the time I got it together, part of my, my, the people I was studying was NASA, broadcasters, and educators, and looking at how they are dealing with tech technology. Nobody knew what I was talking about during those days at all, not even the professors. In fact, I used to love to meet my colleagues because I, I part of going to graduate school is learning your, your ability to argue. Boy, and I was good at it. And I would be <laughs> asked about this or whatever and got on a roll. But to make a long story short, my dissertation was the second in the country on technology and education. So again, nobody knew what I was talking about. I had to send out my survey four times. The educators didn't know, NASA knew, but NASA was dealing with things so technical that nobody was gonna understand what they were talking about. So I had to carve out, I had to do what was known as a MONOVA, methodology and re research method and a MANOVA is when you have sets and sets data as opposed to one data set that you can do with an and ANOVA. Mm -hmm. Luckily, I had a great statistic professor who loved me and I think about Patty now because I was alumna of the year and commencement speaker and she invited me back but I used, I was su such a student who was so much into this. I'd be at her door early in the morning before she got <laughs> in talking about this or statistics and stuff. And she said, Deanna, you're not in trouble. What's going on? Yeah, but I need to know. That's the way I approach things probably even to this day. But yeah, so that's what my research was on, which is, I guess, how all this administrative, but they created, they didn't have a PhD in technology or something in broadcasting and radio and television. It didn't exist. They didn't have a PhD. So what they let me do was create sort of some synergy with the broadcasting people and the education people to create my own sort of niche for my research because it didn't fit. So they didn't know where to fit me. So we created a fit. Yeah. So now you left, you graduated from Carbondale. Where did you go from there? My, my first job was Jackson State. So you're talking about culture shock again. I go from Carbondale to Jackson, Mississippi. I was writing, I did my PhD in two years. And my first semester... At, I had finished, no, my first semester at Jackson State, I was finishing up because I was determined to burn my title sheet and throw it in the water on New Year's. <laughs> that was my goal. I was going to be finished. And I finished it. And Jackson State, they let me come in. They didn't have, again, which is why I left. When I first went to Jackson State, I was teaching television, but I didn't have no cameras. How do you teach students television? And they don't have the handheld equipment, the cameras. But I taught whatever they asked me to teach. But my department chair from Carbondale became the department chair at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And he called me and said, I know you miss broadcasting, don't you? I've just taken a job at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And would you come? Okay. 
So there I go, the Lone Ranger again, being the first Black person <laughs> to go in and be a professor. I remember the dean and Kelly Leiter, he was a little guy looking at me now. Do you, are you sure you could be happy there? By that time, I wanted to be out of Mississippi so bad. I didn't know the Klan was up the road in Tennessee. Now, when you were at Jackson, did you know Jane Murtis? Uh, she became, I'm trying to remember her name. She became the the head of the radio and television. There was, no uh, Elaine Hayes Anthony was the person when I was there. Okay, well, she, so came, been, she came yeah, afterwards. She was there for been. years. Yeah, it must have been afterwards. I, so the University of Tennessee had less courses. And again, I, I taught all the television news there. So all of the students who went on television were my students. I used to get interviewed so much, so many people. And, and then I, I was tapped for a political talk show, the Tennessee Report, Black. The, the only woman on there with these four guys. I'll show you to follow Brinkley when Brinkley was on. And we used to get a five share on a Sunday in mm. Tennessee. But you had all of these people, government, the, this is the governor's board. Somebody, Ron McMahon used to come. He'd have an envelope with dirt, everything. But I actually, they invited me on the show when Clinton was running for president just as, just to, to interview and talk about the election. But I did so well that they invited me to join the show. So I did the Tennessee report for about three years or so, and then commentaries on the news. And I had a show with my students on the, I was on the ABC affiliate. I had a week, a show called Weekend, a news magazine show with my students on the CBS affiliate. I continued in that particular vein through there. And until, I, I did a lot of stuff in Tennessee. Did you like living in Knoxville? Knoxville was, I love the mountains and nature again, but what made Knoxville for me, especially early on, was meeting Alex Hale. Alex Haley was one of my mentors. And I'm actually in the <clears throat> Warner Brothers production that they did with, he was Malcolm's daughter's godfather. She's doing the narration. I actually, when they came to do it, I was just supposed to be the coordinator of production and stuff. And then they found out how close we were. And they said, no, we got to interview you. But Alex, everybody calls me Dr. Z. And that's because of Alex. He made that my household name, even though people started me call, calling me that at Jackson, but he made it household. He said, I can't say Deanna or Ziegler. So I said, well, people call me Dr. Z. So he said, take me with him a lot. In fact, I have video. I used to shoot him every time we would go someplace. And then he was on a two acre farm. I was, when I was president of Black Faculty Staff Association, he would give me the farm. I used to get people off work for three days. And I created a conference <laughs> and we used to have it at Alex's place. <laughs> My mother's even come down. He would sign books for everywhere. In fact, I spoke, I went with the president to his funeral in Henning, but I was, I spoke for his memorial at the University of Tennessee. That's how much we hung out together. Mm -hmm. I love and still miss him. I have a letter hanging here on my wall 
that he dictated to me on Christmas day, he was on a ship. I sent him a Christmas card and he was out there, but this letter was so special. He starts talking about how he always goes and he, as he's crisscrossing and he's out there near the Azores. And I'll tell you why that's important soon. And while he's there, he found my card. And he says, since Roots, he talks about Roots in the letter. And he just says, and I want to wish you too, young lady, a Merry Christmas. So I have that framed over there. And then I have a picture of his covers in all languages. I think there were only three of them. The University of Tennessee has one. I have one. And his assistant at that time. I got everything that he's ever sent. I was fighting with people back in the day about when they were trying to talk about him. They were interviewing me in Atlanta and stuff. And I met Oprah there, Lou Gossett, Sammy Davis Jr.'s wife. When she came, boy, we all danced all night. He said, he suggested, it, it was wonderful. We used to get in that Jeep and ride around. But the reason I'm bringing him up because Alex was helped me get published after my dissertation because he said, take me to the farm, show me those sardine cans and said, I ate all these sardines. And he said, you can keep writing. He actually read my thesis that I was telling you about and told me, take out Max chapter and publish that. And that's what I did. And it was published twice. It's in the Journal of Black Studies and then it got published <laughs> somewhere else. But he helped me kick off that. And after that, I was just writing, writing, and writing. I want to tell the audience that pre-Dr. Z, we just used to call you DZ. <laughs> Everybody still calls me DZ. And it, it's funny, all of my cousins in New York has called me DZ. And other people call me D or Z. I still, that will always be my name, DZ. Now, what made you decide to leave University of Tennessee? Because it sounded like you were having a wonderful time there. I was having a wonderful time and people, I'm the only African-American, I'm in the Hall of Fame there, ever in the history, which I think is ridiculous because this goes back to 1994, who has ever been elected president of faculty senate. That's crazy. But that's what kind of world it was. I was like the voice out there fighting and fighting. They invited me back to be the Martin Luther King Day speaker several years ago, and I really pounced on them about that. Because just because I leave doesn't mean you stop. Okay. I didn't intend, just like I intended to go to some Illinois or Jackson State. I followed the spirit. So I got a call. I had a colleague that I was very active in the Broadcast Education Association, which is part of NAB, and mm -hmm. always there. And they have an endowed chair, Goth Reeves. So my colleague called me and asked me if I would come for a year to teach the students, introduce them and the, the Goth Reeves Eminent Scholar Chair. So I went down for a year, but that was the year that FAMU became College of the Year. Fred Humphreys was there. The students would laugh at my jokes much earlier. <laughs> There was a lot of music and culture that, that I didn't have in Knoxville. Mm -hmm. So it was great. Humphreys, Dr. Humphreys, and somehow hooked me up with the theater department 
director and asked us to do a production, the react reenactment of the eight presidents. And of course I could bring the visual backdrops and all of that stuff and coaching. Well, after that performance, cause I was saying goodbye to them. I was down at the Pointer Institute, which is a journalism think tank, you know, where you go and you get fellowships. I had a fellowship down there and I get a call and um, saying that Dr. Humphreys doesn't want you to go. We want to make you an offer. Make a long story short, I stayed on leave for two and a half years. They let me, literally, let me write my own job description. I, what was the, the thing that was so exciting, I could use my other degree. They let me start the distance learning instructional technology program. I started that from scratch and put the TV station on the air that was a blank screen. So I had challenges, which I thrive on. So I put the TV on the air, went from a blank screen to a 24-hour TV station. And I started their distance learning instructional technology in the process when technology was all new. And I ended up in the top 50 African-Americans in technology and then the top 100 and Black engineers and stuff. But still, I was bringing the production aspect to technology, how you package, like what we're doing now, how all of that had not come into play. But because I had that other background, helped me because I wanted distance learning programs like no other. They had to move, they had to have graphics, they had to have music. They were production to me. So that's how they got me. Besides, they bought me because they paid me <laughs> a good salary and they let me write my own job description. Now, I tell you, I've never worked harder in my life <laughs> than I worked there. I've had so many jobs besides doing that, acting VP of research over in a national programs, <laughs> over academic affairs, so many different things. And then start doing stuff in government. I got appointed to the Florida Virtual School Board of Trustees, which I stayed on for 18 years. I became a state commissioner for eight years, Florida Commission of Status of Women. I was chair of that twice and i was also chair of the other board when god has a vision for you you may not see it because while it appears that it took me off track i just used everything on the track to synchronize everything together let's put it that way that's what makes great people is you make you not only do you make eight out of lemons but you create a new product out of the lemonade and you call it something else. And actually this fits in so much to the theme of this show that it's always been. The theme is progress despite obstacles. It has been the theme of this show and how I pick out guests that I want to talk with because I know that they've done many things in their lives and but they've had struggles. Everybody, no one does everything that that runs smoothly. To start off on my speeches, I was born in Harlem, one block from the Power Theater. I came up in a single family household, but my daddy was always there. I, I don't let them ever separate me from my history. No, you are not special. No, there are many people who came up the same way I did, 
who are successful that you may not have come in contact with. Yes. Very clearly. And that's what, because even with, and I know that you'll probably get to some point asking me about the other hat that I wear as far as the being knighted, because that's, that came out of, you but, never know how they select you. First, but first, tell the people what you're talking about and then okay. go into it so that they know what in you're talking about. In 2008, I was knighted as a Dame of Justice by the Sovereign Order of the Knights of Justice. I was knighted in Cambridge, England in 2008. Okay, 2007, and this is the only story that I can connect things because they never tell you. I used to do a lot of international speaking and 2007 was the first time, even before I did the Oxford Roundtable, I was doing a World Forum and I was speaking at Oxford University. The World Forum, people from countries all over the world are speaking in that. And of course, this was early on. Technology had gone already and had done so many things, but this was, I was already in the groove and had started getting recognition for all of my work. But a lot of these countries had not even implemented some of the groundwork, the base groundwork. Like I went to the Dominican Republic under my instructional technology. We started teleconferencing, almost similar to the Zoom, creating technology and education for them right at the turn of the century. Sir Gary was also presenting at that forum. So this is what I think happened. I think that he told them or was impressed about what I was speaking on. And later on that year in 2007, I got an actual invitation to come to a knighting ceremony at Warwick Castle in mm -hmm. Warwick, England. So I went to my provost and I said, look, I got this invitation to this and they're looking at me, What's not? this is not part of our culture or what we do. So in spite of people believing I paid for this or something like that, that didn't even part of my experience. You know what I'm saying? So she says, I'm not gonna pay for this. And I said, oh, that's all right. I'll tell you what, I'll pay for it, but just sign me out. I was still the vice president. So I'm just sign my travel. I'll take care of it because I wanted to see what this was. So I went, wow, was it, it was something very grand. They had the horses, they had all kinds of assimilation and then to go in and we had that whole castle that night. I don't know how much money the Knights of Justice paid for that castle, but there was nobody in that castle in the evening. Lots and a few people working. I had toured the Warwick Castle before during one of my international trips. And in the room, which is why I wanted to go, in the room that we were having the knighthood celebration, it was then Prince Charles told me on that tour that he had an event the night before when I first toured it. I mean, to me, okay, I'm, I just want to be in the room. Maybe something will rub off on me. He went and they sat me at a table. I had still had no idea. I'm so naive. I don't know what's going on with Sir Roger, who was a big deal 
he was a knight commander. I'm a dame commander now, but he was a knight commander. It's a different a rank. And I'm just happy to be in the room. He didn't stop. So I see him and Sir Paul, who was the grand chancellor at that time. They get up. Paul comes and taps Roger. I'm going to stop using Sir and stuff on the shoulder. And they go to talk. So Roger comes back and he says, Wow, you're really a, quite a lucky young lady. Still, it's it not even dawning on me, okay? During the knighting ceremony, after they knighted so many people, I think it may have been seven or eight people, my name was called and they gave me a bronze medal for my work in education. They gave a medical doctor. He was from one of the African countries. We were the only two. And I'm saying, wow, that was a complete surprise. The next year, that was 2007, 2008. I don't know if you know it, but I also do work for the State Department, Commerce, USAID. I'm what you call a public member of the Foreign Service. I evaluate tenure and promotion of Foreign Service diplomats. And I serve on these boards with diplomats, but they have foreign service officers. They have to have one public member by law mm -hmm. to make sure that everything is honest because they all know each other. And because when I was over international, we had a diplomat in residence, I got appointed. I've had seven federal appointments now, but I got appointed there for the state to come up there for 10 weeks in the summer to serve on. And it's so funny because the first board I served on was called the threshold. That's the top where they are. They you either get thrown out of the foreign service or you're going to cross the burning sands. Like we <laughs> while I was up there, I got a call from Sapral and he said, Lady Deanna, while I was staying in DC, I was staying right across from, they treated me good too. They put me in a little condo right across the street. So he calls and says, Lady Diana. And that's how I knew I was being knighted. <laughs> and I said, what? I said, Lady Diana. Then he tells me, and I'm saying, wow, I'm just, and then I still didn't believe it, right? I'm thinking something fishy. They send me all the paperwork and all this stuff. I have to fill it out. So I decided I'm going to send everything through the State Department, facts and all that, because if this stuff ain't real, they're going to surely catch it. I sent everything through. Nothing came back. And April 12, 2008, I was knighted Cambridge. Congratulations. Thank you. Congratulations to Lady Doctor Diana lady Doctor. Just doctor, lady not just Diana lady, but Lady Doctor. Everybody calls me Lady D. It's like Dr. Ziegler always sounded funny to me. That's why my students call me Dr. Z. It's like all of that. Let's take it down a notch. Lady D is cool. I want to keep that humility and humanity. Okay, very quickly, what are some of the plans that you have going forward? During the I retired from higher education, in 2019, and I've gone back to my first love. I love a lot of things now, I can't say my first love, but during the pandemic, I decided to start writing music again. And I wrote some songs, I sent them to you. 
And I also did my brother-in-law's book. I finally did hear from the publisher yesterday <laughs> that I've been waiting and where he's saying, sorry for the delay that he's going to look at everything and get back. So Midnight Train from Georgia, the story of my brother-in-law, redid that. I did an animation, a three-minute animation. I'd never tried an animation. And ironically, it ended up in a California three-minute film festival as an official selection last summer. Again, something with music and everything, but I really loved music. As I said, I went back to writing, producing music. I sent you the songs. What do you think? I think they're great, and we will talk about it. Right. But, but I wanted to say at this point, I thank you so much for being part of this broadcast today. It was fun. It was fun just talking and learning that we have so much more in common that we thought about and <laughs> we need to do this again after knowing each other all of these years and we have so much yes. to talk about and you're not gonna miss me when i come home this year okay thank you, for, you know and inviting me sorry it's taking so long i was trying to get hey. great things to talk about it but this has been fun i appreciate you okay that's it for the show about stuff we'll see you next week thank you Thank you for tuning in this week. Hope you enjoyed this show about stuff. See you next time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.